Good morning. This morning we're talking about Romans 9 through 11, or starting that section of Scripture, I should say, focusing today on chapter 9. Um, There's a little bit of a question in my mind of how to bring the kids into this topic, Um, but I think I have one. So kids, have you ever been confused before in your life? They're all looking confused at me right now. So, right now. What did you do when you were confused? Yes. You asked your parents. Did that help? Sometimes. That's great. Any other ideas? What, what do we do when we're confused? Well, the reason I bring that up is that Paul is confused in today's passage. So we're going to be talking about what Paul does with some of his confusion. And for the next couple of weeks, your parents might be confused at church. So kids, right now, just turn to your parents and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through Romans 9 through 11. Uh, One of my favorite descriptions of uh, this section of Romans uh, that I saw in a commentary was, it is a theological abyss. And then another commentator cautioned his students to not spend too much time in these passages or they might go crazy. Um, So we are going to go through them pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, The struggle with these three chapters is that they often lead to these headache-inducing questions about things like free will, predestination, election, sovereignty. And those kinds of questions will often lead, at least the theologically uh, oriented people among us, into arguments and fights, some of which are more cordial than others, in my experience. But as I've sat with Romans 9 over these past couple weeks in preparation for this, I kind of came to this conclusion. I I don't think Paul set out in these chapters to write a theological treaty on predestination. I think there's implications about those topics in these passages. But I don't think that's ultimately what Paul's trying to wrestle with immediately. So what I want to do today is I want to show you that first and foremost, this for Paul is a crisis of faith. Paul is wrestling with the crisis of faith. And so I think in these passages, in Romans 9, what we'll see is this crisis of faith, and then we'll see how Paul responds to that crisis of faith. And then we'll see what Paul found as in that response, in what he did. So you just pray with me as we uh, get started. Father, we ask for your spirit to come and enlighten us today. Give us a sense of humility and curiosity as we approach this passage. And help us to see what you might have for us um, today. In Jesus' name, amen. So right away, I'm saying that there's a crisis of faith here. And I think what's really important to understanding this passage is us getting into Paul's mindset. So the first thing I'd want to ask you is, have you had your own crisis of faith before? Have you had experiences in your life where you've asked, why, God? 
Has your heart ached like Paul's does for unbelieving friends or family? These bring up complicated questions. Can make us feel alone. Can make us feel isolated. We might not know what to do with those doubts and fears as we engage with God. For Paul, this doubt, this crisis of faith, is centered around the unbelief of Israel. This, for him, meant something about his beliefs around God and around who Israel was. For Paul, the question here is, what does it mean that God's chosen people have rejected God's chosen Messiah? What does it mean for them? And then ultimately, what does it mean about God? Because Paul has just spent eight chapters expounding this gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament, that all of salvation history was leading up to Jesus. And yet, he's living in a present time when a majority of his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected that Messiah. Does that somehow mean God's plan has failed? We have to hold that question in mind when we come through these next three chapters, because that is ultimately what Paul is wrestling with. What do we do with the unbelieving Jewish community at that time? Keep in mind what Paul says about the Israelites in this passage. He says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, Christ. That is a high view of the Jewish community. And so this becomes a challenge for Paul to the character of God. Has God's plan somehow failed because Israel has rejected him? So how does Paul respond to this? There is this crisis of faith. How does Paul respond to that crisis of faith? I see two things that are implied in his argument. First, he returns to the story of Scripture. He does not abandon the Old Testament, which was certainly a temptation in early Christian faith. He returns to the story of Scripture again. For our crisis of faith, are we returning to the story of Scripture? But not only that, he doesn't just return to it. He returns to it and he holds a specific posture of his heart. He maintains the goodness of God. He does not abandon God's goodness in his search through the scriptures. And so we see this shift that takes place through the three chapters of 9, 10, and 11. And so we'll, when we get to 11, you'll see this more clearly. But he shifts from the beginning of chapter 9 I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the Jewish people. And he shifts to, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. So I think Paul encourages us by his actions to work out our crises of faith in the presence of God and his word, not by ourselves. But what does he find, right? What's the content here? What helps him shift from great sorrow and unceasing anguish to the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge 
of God. In short, here's what I think Paul finds. The plan of salvation, God's covenant purposes, never rested on human will. They never rested on us. They never rested on Israel's belief or unbelief. It was always on the mercy of God. Let me look at some examples here through this passage. So we're just going to walk through the rest of this chapter here to see what Paul found. First and foremost, he gives us Abraham and Isaac. And what he's saying there is that, and this is in verse 8 if, you want to, if you're following along. Um, what he's saying there is that this isn't based on family heritage. Right? The plan of salvation does not flow through one family, but it flows through the promise. Right? Isaac is in the promise and not Ishmael. So God is working out his plan of salvation because of, through Isaac. Second, we have Jacob and Esau. Not because of works, right? Because the decision of, of the plan of salvation flowing through Jacob occurred before they had done anything. So it, it says in verse, um, towards the end there, I think it's in verse 14, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul is showing that God working out salvation through human history is based on the mercy and the intention of God, not on us. Can you see how this would give Paul hope? In the midst of unbelieving Israel, the foundation of salvation is God's actions towards us, not our own action towards God. In the face of unbelieving Israel who has rejected Jesus, Paul saying it is God's mercy towards them that ultimately will matter. And then we have the example of Moses as he keeps going. And here he's responding to the question of if it's just about God's mercy and if God has mercy on on whomever he decides to have mercy, is there injustice? And he brings up this passage from Moses where he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it might feel like a bit of a disconnect there from the question, is God unjust? No, because he has mercy on who he has mercy. It doesn't feel like he's answering the question. But I sat with that for a minute, and I went back. That passage comes from the story of the golden calf. That, that passage shows up after the golden calf. So what is Paul doing? He's going to another example when Israel rejected God. And he's saying God's intention and God's plan moved through that even in the midst of their hardness of heart. It was about God's mercy, not their faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness, not their own. And so Israel's rejection of God at Mount Sinai to worship the golden calf did not mean that God's mercy ended. It didn't mean that it it, it ceased. God moved forward in spite of that rejection and in the hardness of heart. It has always been about God's mercy. It's mercy all the way down. It has always been God moving towards us. And then we come to Pharaoh and the clay. 
And I think this is where things really get complicated and a lot of people really start diving into these things and trying to decipher what's going on. Um, Again, keep in mind Paul's crisis of faith. This is a famous example of one of the most powerful figures in history rejecting God. And what is Paul saying? Even in this rejection... There is a, somehow mysteriously, this is part of God's plan. Even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has a purpose. And that's going to matter significantly when we come to chapter 11. That there is a purpose behind the hardening. And what does scripture tell us? Well, it's, it's fascinating. Paul here highlights Pharaoh's Uh, highlights God hardening Pharaoh's heart, which is clearly depicted throughout Scripture. If you go and read the passage of uh, of Exodus where it talks about the plagues, what you'll see is a flipping of that language, right? Sometimes after the plague, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes after the plague, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes it's ambiguous. The grammar doesn't tell us, it just says his heart's hard. So what this means is that there is some sort of an a um, mysterious interaction that I don't think Paul wants us to completely understand, where God's purposes are moving forward even in hardness of heart. What is Paul wrestling with in this passage? He's wrestling with the hardness of heart of Israel during his time. And so we get this clay analogy. Vessels of wrath versus vessels of mercy. And again, this is one of those passages that I think people really dive into in a lot of different ways. Um, If you want more of that philosophical, theological discussion, Jim would love to talk to you um, after church about this this particular topic. Um, He he explicitly expressed that to me this morning. Um, But I think, think again, keeping this in mind, we'll, we'll see two things. One of the ways this is interpreted, I'll just go through it this way is there's sort of two teams, that God creates these two teams in the, beginning of, in the beginning of time, right? You have the people who will be saved and the people who won't be saved. I don't know if that is what is being expressed here. I think it's abundantly clear that when, when we are saved and we look back, all we will see is God's mercy. That is the driving force behind our salvation. But I think ultimately what this is talking about is that um, hardening of heart that is meant... So... Um, Look at the language there after, after the vessels of wrath. What does God do with the vessels of wrath? He endures them with patience. Right? That is how he's interacting with those vessels of wrath. Beyond that, and we'll see this again when we get to chapter 11, Paul talks about a partial hardening of Israel that will ultimately lead to Israel's salvation. And again, there's a lot of mystery around what that might look like. What that tells me is that the vessels of wrath are being endured with patience, and there is hope that God's mercy might win out. We don't know all the ways and how that might work, but what God is doing is enduring with patience those vessels with wrath so he can show his mercy. So, how does this apply to us today? It's a lot of complicated thoughts here, a lot of complicated theology. 
Here's how I would want to bring this home. I want you to look at that last quote from uh, Isaiah that he brings up. Um, and it says this. As I date, this is uh, verse 29. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If the Lord hadn't done it, where would we be? If the Lord hadn't moved towards us in faith, where would we be? If the Lord hadn't moved towards us in, in mercy, I mean, where would we be? If the Lord hadn't moved towards us in grace and peace, as Ford said this morning, where would we be? Can you peel back the floorboards of your life and see the foundation of mercy that God has built there? Can you recognize all that has been given to you that comes from mercy? Can we trust that it is this merciful God who is working out all things in creation and through history for his glory and for our good, as Ford is wont to say? Can we be grateful and receive the mercy of God? What are the things in your life that you can recognize that wouldn't be there if the Lord hadn't done it? The Lord hadn't been active and moving. Let's start there. And from that vantage point, we can work through the confusion and the crises of faith as they come.